the Patriots practice facility, there's like hills on both sides. And, and Terry Glenn was, was sitting on a hill. He didn't practice. He, he just like, I'm not going to practice. And he was yelling out, I want my money. <laughs> I want my money. Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo, and by now you know how this show Half Forgotten History works, but season two, of course, is getting even better. We're still sitting down with legends of the game, but this season we're focused on Super Bowl champions only. You gotta have a ring if you wanna be in this thing. And we're glad to say we're also partnering with DraftKings to make sure you're enjoying all your sporting experiences just a little bit more. We'll get to some picks later in the show, but make sure to use the promo code WINGO when you download and use the DraftKings app. Promo code WINGO. So with that in mind, delighted to be joined today by a guy I not only covered for a lot of years in the NFL as a first-round draft pick out of Boston College, but also had the honor of working with for a long, long time. And if you've ever sat through a Jets game and don't follow him on Twitter, you are missing entertainment for the ages, ladies and gentlemen. The only guy I know that kicked the can three times as an offensive lineman, center, guard, all-around good guy, two-time Super Bowl champion, Damian Woody. What's up, big man? Trey, how you doing, my man? Uh, doing good, brother. Always good to see you. Always good to chop it up with you. So let, let's start here at the beginning. I think people would say, oh, Damian Woody went to Boston College, played for the Patriots, of course. But you were a bumpkin, man, from Beaver Dam, Virginia. <laughs> How did you ingratiate yourself into the great Northeast in BC and then the Patriots by being from Beaver Dam, Virginia? You know, I get that question all the time. Like, how in the world did a guy from the backwoods of Virginia end up at Boston College? And it was pretty simple. You know, my whole life, man, I always dreamt of going to the University of Virginia and and I got offered a scholarship my junior year. But Trey, at the end of the day, man, I wanted to, I wanted to try something different. Um, I got recruited by almost every school around the country. And, um, you know, I took I took an official visit up to Boston and everyone was like, what in the hell? Why in the hell would a guy from Virginia want to go up to Boston? And I just said and I just said, you know what? It's um, at the time, Boston College was coming off of. They were coming off like a like like ten wins. Okay, this was Tom Coughlin's last year at BC before he moved on to the Jacksonville Jaguars, and so I said, you know what? Let me go up here and check out, see what this this program's all about. And uh, I I was sold. I was sold. I was sold on the education. I was sold on the fact that the school was on the rise as a football program. So I ended up making the decision going to BC. But here's the here's the funny part. The funny part was. My family, my, my grandparents, everyone, we had a big van to take me up to BC. And my grandparents, they, God bless their soul, they were like, they had never experienced rush hour traffic. So we get up to BC, <laughs> we, we hit this rush hour traffic, they dropped me off at the dorm, and they was like, listen, have a good four years, because we're never coming back up, up here again, <laughs> ever, ever. So that was that's how I ended up at Boston College. So they cut you off right away. Like, we love you and we think you're great, but we are not putting up with this crap one more time. Never again. Because at the time, there was the whole big dig up in Boston, that whole oh, yeah. pro highway project. And they were like, there's no way in hell I'm coming back up here again. Well, somehow, without, without them showing up, you managed to survive. You thrived, even though there was a coaching change at BC. And you're a first-round pick of the New England Patriots, what, in 1999? Correct. Let's see, who else was a pick of the Patriots in 1999? Well, one year later, somebody else came along. So you were there right at the precipice. So you were a year in after Tom Brady gets drafted by in the sixth round out of Michigan in 2000. And what were your initial impressions 
of Tom Brady? Because you had already played a year and you were already starting a year before that with Bledsoe. Yeah, you know, first thing I noticed was like, this guy's not the most physically imposing type of guy. <laughs> you know, everything, <laughs> every video and every clip from the combine, it was it was true. I'm like, this guy's not going to intimidate anyone just by his physical prowess. Um, but the one thing you saw with him is this dude had an amazing work ethic. Like, the whole, I know it gets cliche-ish, but the whole first person there, last person lead, that was really, that was really Tom. He worked his tail off and he came in as he was the number four quarterback behind Drew Bledsoe, behind John Freeze, behind Michael Bishop. And what you saw from this guy, he was just methodical, just practice after practice, game after game. He just methodically worked his way up until he was literally the backup to Drew Bledsoe. So that whole chip that he has on his shoulder, you can't, like you can't get to the status that 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 he got to without having a massive chip and a massive work ethic. Was Pete Carroll your coach your rookie year? He was. Pete Carroll's my coach. Okay, so okay, that's not it. Because I'm trying to think if there's a bigger 180 swing between how Pete Carroll coaches <laughs> a football team very successfully, let's be clear, very successfully, mm-hmm. and how Bill Belichick does it. So your rookie year, it's Bledsoe and Pete Carroll as your head coach. Yep. In 2000, Bill comes over, and we'll get to the Bledsoe Brady thing in a minute. But your initial reaction from this is how Pete ran things to Bill running things, what was that like? So so literally, I I asked, like, the older guys, like, Willie McGinnis, Teddy Brewski, like, dude, what am I in for? He was like, buckle up, brother. You about to, you about to be in for a treat here. And I remember <laughs> our very first training camp, the night before, Bill comes into the team meeting. He walks in. He was like, there are no breaks. There will be no breaks. Just put your head down and let's go to work. And he walks out. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, what are we in for? And, Trey, when I tell you, it was the hardest training camp I have ever, ever gone through. Literally, every night, a guy was retiring. He would come into the team meeting. He was like, this person retired, that person retired. It was a bloodbath in training camp. And that was kind of the way the first season went. We went, I think, 5-11 and 11 our first year. And Bill didn't let up at all. He didn't let up. We practiced in pads Wednesday, Thursday, even Friday sometimes. And everyone knows on Friday, Fridays are usually perfect Fridays where you don't wear pads, you're in you're, you're basically in, like, your jersey. You just want to make sure everything is perfect. There were times where Bill had us in pads on Fridays. So he was literally trying to set the culture, set the tone for, for you know, for the program. And, and let's be clear. He had come in having already failed as a head coach in Cleveland. Correct. And your first year in 2000, I wouldn't call it great. So what were you guys thinking about who this guy was and the things he was doing at that time. Were you buying into it, or did you guys have many questions? No, I, I no, no, guys were buying into it, but it, we knew it was a transition. We were one of the oldest teams in the league. We had a lot of veteran guys, a lot of veteran leftovers from the, you know, the pill, the, the Parcells, Pete Care era. And it was just, we were in transition. But the one thing that could never be disputed was his acumen for the game of football. And I just I'll tell it till the cows come home to this day. I've never been around a guy 
as smart and as prepared as Coach Belichick. His ability to know situations, to know the game of football, it was apparent we just didn't have the talent in our first year. We, he didn't have enough of his guys. And uh, that was a real reason why we were 5-11. It wasn't because of the coach. The coach knew exactly what he was, what he was talking about. We just didn't have the pieces yet. All right, so you, you thought you had something with Bill. You started in 2001, and the season gets off to a decent start. Then you play the Jets. Mo Lewis hits Drew Bledsoe, mm. and that's it for him. So in comes Brady. So when you realized that Brady was coming in and Bledsoe was going out, what, what was the first thing that went through your mind? Well, okay, so, you know, this is something that a lot of people won't, won't you know, won't know is, so I got hurt in that game as well. I had a next thing, and I didn't, I didn't return in that game. I was in a locker room when, when Drew Bledsoe got injured. A lot of people don't know Drew Bledsoe almost died that day. Like he had blood, he had blood filling up. I think he filled up his like lung, filling up his lungs. Like he was in terrible shape. And so I was just more concerned about Drew Bledsoe's health. But obviously that hit by Mo Lewis basically set the stage for the Patriots dynasty and, and Tom Brady came in and, you know, <laughs> that the rest is history from as far as that is concerned. Okay, so take me through the first few games with Brady. Did you think automatically this kid has a chance, or did, were there many questions right away? No, I, I thought he had a chance. And, and a lot of this stuff has to do with practice, Trey. Is is the the one thing about you know the really good quarterbacks that I've ever been been with is their command, their command, and just. They know how to lead. Like when you look at it in their eyes, they just know how to just guys gravitate towards them. And Brady, even with the lack of experience, you everyone tend to gravitate towards him because he was prepared. When he got his opportunities in the huddle, he knew what he was doing. And so when Tom came in, it wasn't like, oh, you know, oh my gosh, like we're doomed. No, it was like, okay, we got a young guy here. Everyone needs to do their part. But we knew what we knew that Tom knew what to do when he was in the game. And so Tom was never going to be the guy initially that was going to go out there and throw for 300 yards and just sling it all on the field. Bill wanted him to manage the game because our strength was on the defensive side of the football. And that's what Tom Brady did. He grew into the role. And, and, and people need to understand that year in 2001, it wasn't only there was an issue with the quarterback situation, we also had an issue with the best wide receiver, which was Terry Glenn, right? There was, there was a whole drama going on with Bill and Terry Glenn at that point as well. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, it was a contractual situation where I believe the patron withheld some of Terry Glenn's money. Um, he was not, he was not through. I remember one time I think we were playing, um, I think it was like the week of the Chargers, like Terry Glenn was the pray the Patriots practice facility. There's like hills on both sides. Yeah. And, and Terry Glenn was, was sitting on a hill. He didn't practice. He he just like, I'm not going to practice. And he would say, and he would, he was yelling out, I want my money. <laughs> I want my money. So he's like, on the hill practice. while you guys are practicing, screaming, while I want we, my money. While we were practicing, he was basically yelling, I want my money. And like, but anyone that saw Terry Terry Glenn play practice, and some of the best, some of the best moments was watching him and and Ty Law go at it in practice. 
But he he ended up playing against the Chargers. I think he had over 100 yards in a game. He was outstanding, and we got a win against the Chargers. But that was a that was a delicate issue um, early on in, the, in in 2001. So let's just set the stage, just so everyone's clear. Okay, you got a guy who's never been a winning coach in the NFL really as a head coach before in Bill Belichick in his second year after 5-11. and 11. Your starting quarterback almost literally dies. He's out of the game. In comes a six-rounder from Michigan. Your best playmaking wide receiver is holding out of practice, screaming, I want my money while you guys are, <laughs> while, while you guys are slugging it out. Seems like the perfect recipe for a championship season. How in the hell did all this work? <laughs> you know what? I don't, sometimes I don't even know, Trey. I think it's, it's, Obviously, Bill had a lot to do with it, but, man, our locker room was special. We had a special – Trey, you've been around – you've been around yeah. Brewski. And, like, those oh, yeah. guys, like, they were all special guys. And, obviously, they came from the Bill Parcells era as well. That's where they started. So, when you have Brewski and Vrabel and, 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 and Willie McGinnis and all those guys, those guys knew how to be pros. They knew how to keep things together. So – um, I give a lot of credit to, to those guys in the locker room for keeping it all together. Yeah. So somehow through all of that, you guys do pretty well. You get into the postseason and you have a home game in the divisional round against the uh, Oakland Raiders. Or were they the LA Raiders at that point? I think they were the LA Raiders at that point. They were they, the Raiders. They, no, they were Oakland Raiders. They were the Oakland Raiders. They were back Raiders. in Oakland. Okay. They yes. moved so much. Let's just call them I'm, the Raiders. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a Western time zone team, the Raiders. So this, of course, becomes the infamous Tuck game. And as as a large human being, you had to love this game because it might have been one of the most torrential snowstorms consistently through a game I've ever seen. Before we get into the dynamics of the play that really launched a thousand championships and all that kind of stuff, just take us through what it was like trying to play football in that game at Old Foxborough Stadium. Trey, it was it was kind of a magical scene um, because they had been calling for the, the you know the the weather. Sometimes you don't you don't really believe that it was going to be that type of snowstorm, but it started out you know a little light, but at like a snap of a finger, the snow was coming sideways. It was coming sideways, and I th- like the Raiders were really good that year, really good, and. Um, but we knew, boy, we, we get this weather. Well, that's gonna be that's gonna be a game changer for us because what what a team out in, a team out in California they're not gonna want to play in those those type of conditions. And um, man, the footing was awful. And like you said, as an offensive lineman, it was great because they can't rush the passer and they don't know what, where the ball is going. So you know, as offensive lineman, that was just great for us. Okay, so now we get to the play, the tuck rule. You're on the field. You see it happen. I believe there's footage of NFL films right when the play happens. You think ball game over, it's done, right? There's Was there any part of you when that play happened think, wait a minute, that might be a tuck instead of a fumble? <laughs> Trey, I've never, I had never heard of the tuck rule, ever, ever. <laughs> None of us I, I literally, if you watch the play on NFL films, I'm jumping on, I believe it was like Greg Beaker or somebody who yeah, recovered Beaker. a fumble. Yeah, Beaker. Yeah, yeah, I jumped on top of him. I was just slightly behind. Once that happened, I thought game over. Oakland won. Our season is over. And you just, all of a sudden, you just started hearing whispers and people on the sidelines. Bill, I, I looked at Bill and Bill had this look on his face like, 
this thing is not over. Like something's happening. I didn't know what it was. I'm a young guy. I didn't know what a tuck rule was, but all of a sudden Walt Anderson comes out and Trey, when he announced the whole base, the old tuck rule and, and that we will retain, retain possession. The whole Raiders sideline, all their players, they were all deflated. Like they were all done. And we knew in that moment, we're going to win this game. I think we both need to take a time out here at a moment and just give a moment of silence to our good friend, Amy Trask, who's probably going to be watching this podcast at some point and her head is exploding. <laughs> that we're re- Amy, this for you. We love you. We love you. But we, 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 we got to talk about this. Yeah, we love you, Amy. We got to talk about this. So everybody remembers, and they remember the game-winning kick by Adam Vinatieri. It was great. The kick he made to tie that game, to oh. me, is the greatest kick in the hit. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's had a million uh, amazing kicks. That kick in the snow, the way he drove that thing just to get to the tie, to me, that's the greatest kick I've ever seen in NFL history. Yes, it definitely was. And we knew, um, you know, guys protected that it would have to be a low line drive kick because of the conditions. The wind was whipping so hard that he couldn't kick it up in the air. The ball was just going to sail one way or the other. So we just knew, first of all, we had the clear spot from the kick. Second, there could be no penetration. If there was any penetration, that ball was going to get blocked. And um, we did our job, and, and Adam kicked the best ball I've ever seen any kicker kick in, in, in NFL history. Absolutely. So that got you to overtime, and then he kicks the game winner in overtime. So you go to the Steelers for the AFC Championship game that year, and lo and behold, what happens? Brady gets hurt. Bledsoe has to come in. What was your mindset in that situation? Because that was a weird game. I think you guys scored one offensive touchdown. They get yeah. a defensive touchdown and a kick return for a touchdown as well. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. That's that's the type of game that you know Bill Belichick loves when you have all three phases working in tandem. Um, but but when Drew came in, we knew we were like, we're not going to miss a beat with, with Drew Bledsoe in here, and he was confident. And you know, we just tried to you know that Pittsburgh defense was they were the best in the league that year, and so we just. We just try to give him time, and he hit. I think he hit the, the touchdown pass to David Patton uh, yep. in, in the in the end zone. And boy, the, the look on Drew's face—he just had this look like, "Yeah, you like? Did y'all see me coming here with this thing around?" <laughs> and um, man, honestly, Trey, I couldn't be happier for a guy because yeah. being in a situation like that where you lose your job to an injury and you got to sit back and remember. Drew Bledsoe had just signed a $100 million deal. Yeah. Think about that. He yeah. had signed a $100 million deal as a quarterback, and so you're basically relegated to back a role to Tom Brady, and for him to be able to come in and have that moment, it, it was just um, it, it was poetic. So that leads us to Super Bowl thirty six, the first of many for the Patriots. Seems like a perfect time for us to take a little break, refresh our glass, when we come back, we'll get to what was arguably at the time the greatest upset in Super Bowl history and how the hell it actually all played out. We're coming right back. Stay with us. UFC 259 is this weekend and is sure to be action-packed with three title fights taking place in one night. And DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC, is putting you in the center of this weekend's title fight with 101 odds on either fighter to land a punch during the title fight. Look, it's real simple. Pick either main event fighter to land a punch during this weekend's UNC 259 bout, and DraftKings Sportsbook will give you 100 to 1 odds. Just bet $1 on either fighter to land a punch, 
And if that happens, you cash in a hundred bucks. Download the top rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code WINGO when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 if either main event fighter lands a punch on Saturday. Place your bet and watch the fist fly this weekend. That's code WINGO to turn $1 into $100 if either fighter lands a punch for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or Indiana only, and new customers only. Restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. And you have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER, or in Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Microsoft Teams is helping Priority Bicycles reinvent the way they work. When the pandemic hit, the bike shop had to close their New York City showroom. Now they found a way to reopen by doing virtual visits on Teams. And now the team can meet with two or three times the number of customers they could before, and people from all over the world can visit their showroom. Learn more about their story and others at Microsoft.com Teams. You know, here on Half Forgotten History, we love talking to the legends in the game about the stories behind some of their most rewarding moments, sometimes in the biggest game possible. And when you're off the field, well, you want to be rewarded as well. So if you're looking for a credit card that fits your lifestyle, look no further. U.S. Bank has credit cards that make every day rewarding, no matter what you're into. For example, you feeling hungry? Well, check out the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining, and get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. That'll keep your wallet and your mouth full. Big spender? Well, the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card has a low intro APR for large purchases or balance transfers, and you call the shots with the U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card. Choose two categories each quarter, earn 5% back on your first $2,000 of eligible purchases from those categories. So don't just get a credit card, get the right card to make every day more rewarding. Cashback, merchandise, travel rewards, and low intro APRs are waiting. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated, and the cards are available to U.S. residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. All right, back with Damian Woody on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So we're at Super Bowl 36. And let's be honest, Damian, I was down there that week. It felt like it wasn't a championship week. It was a coronation for the St. Louis Rams. You guys had played in the regular season on a Sunday night game up in Foxborough. It was a close game, but I think the Rams won 14 to seven on a Sunday night game on ESPN. And the consensus was from idiots like this guy. Well, they played him in Foxborough <laughs> in the cold weather outdoors and they won 14 to seven. So how in the hell is the greatest show on turf not gonna have a field day with this New England Patriots team? How did you guys as a team sense that during the week and how much did it fuel your fire? Going back to that game in Foxborough, we knew, we were like, if we saw this team again, we could beat them. We could beat this team because it was a bloodbath in Foxborough. We knocked a lot of their players yeah. out of the game. It was a tough game. They beat us, all of that, but we knew with the, if we saw them again, we could beat them. That whole week, I, Bill was just like, guys, this is a business trip. We don't want to go down here to New Orleans and get caught up in Mardi Gras and all this other stuff. Let's go down here. Let's handle our business, okay? Because it's, it's a tall task being, you know, beating the great show on turf. Now, here's the funny thing. 
So, you know, everybody's families are down there. Well, my brother was was down and he would, you know, taking taking part in all the festivities and he would see all the Rams players out of the clubs. I mean, they were out three, four in the morning, just partying it up. Here we are. We're on lockdown at 11 p.m. The Rams players were out partying all week long. And just like you said, they just felt like it was a coronation of the greatest show on turf. We're going to win another Super Bowl, you know, on and on and on. And we get to the game. And that introduction, man, it it was unlike anything I've ever experienced. You know, obviously because of 9-11 that year. Yeah. And, uh, boy, it was on and popping that game. For people that don't understand or may have forgotten – that, you're right. That was the first Super Bowl after 9-11. One of the weirdest things about that, they were like tanks in the streets in New Orleans. I'll never forget yes. that. That was crazy. But the Patriots, and, and you didn't tell anybody this, the, the TV people producing the game, CBS, I think, or Fox had it, excuse me, because it was somewhere all in Madden. Uh, they didn't even know. You know, Normally you do the introductions and one of the units gets introduced, offense or defense. You guys walked out as a team. And I'll yes. never forget, I was standing next to Sal Palantonio, and he says to me, are you trying to tell me that the Patriots – in the first year after 9-11, a team called the Patriots that just did that, you think they're going to lose this game? Ain't no <laughs> way they're going to lose this game. Tell me how you guys decided to do that, come out in unison as a team instead of having one of the units introduced individually. Well, it, it, the, really, you have to rewind back during the season, trade because we were doing that during the season. After 9-11, we started phasing more into just team introductions. We didn't do any more individual introduction we were just coming out as a team and so we were doing this all year long and when it came to the Super Bowl I just remember being in that tunnel and I remember looking at Brady and Bledsoe I mean Trey they were headbutting each other so hard I thought somebody's gonna get a concussion literally <laughs> there was so much energy in 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 the tunnel and I'm just thinking to myself there's no way in hell we're losing this game to the St. Louis Rams. I don't care if they got, you know, if they got Zeus on their side. We're not losing to the St. Louis Rams in this football game. That's how much energy was in that tunnel for the introductions. Just to tell you how much of an effect that had, that following year, my son at like a sixth grader played his first year of organized football and they made it to the championship game and they were going to do the introduction introductions and he got up there and said no no man like the patriots we're going out as a team and i was like that's my boy <laughs> that's my boy <laughs> you, you were you were the inspiration i was like that's I'm right i'm so proud of you that's man, right i won that game so i'm just saying yeah it just it just happened to be that way the whole thing worked perfectly so you guys actually beat the crap out of them in that game and one thing i'll remember about this is they basically, the way Bill called that game from a defensive standpoint, they dared Mike Martz as the offensive coach to run the ball with Marshall Falk, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He just kept throwing passes. Ty Law gets that pick six. And by the time they really started to hand off the ball to Marshall Falk, it was almost in the middle of the second half, and they had to play catch-up that entire game. Bill is just such a football savant, football genius. And I just remember the whole week, Bill was talking to the defense saying that the key to the greatest show on turf is Marshall Falk. The Rams had, you know, obviously got, you know, Kurt Warner, who's a Hall of Famer, you know, Isaac Bruce, who's a Hall of Famer, Torrey Holt, who's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day. But he said, 
the key to this whole thing is Marshall Falk. We need to beat up Marshall Falk, especially when he comes out of backfield passing. Right. And I don't know if you, I don't know if people remember. Willie McGinnis got called for a holding call one time because he literally grabbed like, like bear hugged him coming out of the backfield. Yeah. That was the plan. Yep. Do whatever we need to do to rough up Marshall Falk because he was the key to that whole offense. Yeah. So that worked, and you guys were in the lead the entire game. Then Kurt hits uh, uh, Ricky Prohl for the touchdown yep. to tie it at 17. And you probably did, you, well, obviously didn't know it at the time, but I don't know if you ever went back and looked at it. John Madden went on the telecast and said the Patriots should play for overtime. Yes. They should I saw play it. for overtime. So yes. what was the mindset for you guys going? Because let's be honest, like Brady was great on that drive, he had an okay game. He was not Tom Brady as we know him now, like Super Bowl 51 comeback and all that kind of stuff. That just right. wasn't happening in that game. So what was the mindset for you guys in the huddle to start on that final drive? Yeah, we're going for it. Like, this is a Super Bowl. We had been playing our tails off, and obviously the St. Louis Rams, had, they had momentum, um, in this, you know, in, particularly in the second half. But we just felt like in that moment that we, we, needed, to, we needed to go for it. We're not going to play – for overtime, we're going to go ahead and win this game. And you're right. I remember I, I went back and watched it, the television, the TV copy. Not only did he say it before the drive, but he was saying during the drive that he didn't yeah. agree with what we were doing. When we hit Troy Brown on a on a big play on a crossing route, that's what that really changed everything. It changed the whole dynamic of the drive. You know, obviously uh, we hit Jermaine Wiggins on another play. And then we lined up with with Adam Vinatieri, and um, boy, he hit another. He hit a, he hit a game winning field goal that that sealed the deal. So, can you describe in the best way you can what it meant, what it felt like as soon as you saw that thing go through the uprights? Because no one thought the Patriots were ever going to get close to the playoffs, let alone get to the playoffs, let alone beat the greatest show on turf. Your what was the first thing that went through your head when you knew that field goal was good? I literally saw a light at the end of the tunnel. And what I mean by that is... Oh, chills. Yeah, I saw a light at the end of the tunnel because throughout the whole season, even when we were winning, it felt like we were. I was in darkness because Bill just... He hammered on you every single day. He applied the pressure on you every single day. He never wanted you to be, to be relaxed. His whole thing was get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so in that moment, when, when I saw that ball go through the uprights, it literally felt like a light just came down on me that we did it. All of that hard work, all of the, 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 the training camp, the pads on Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes Fridays, the mental gymnastics that Coach Belichick put us through on a daily basis, it was all worth it at the end of the day. Well, and not only that, you get a second ring uh, in Super Bowl 38 against the uh, Carolina Panthers, and then you jump and go to Detroit. So, you know, everyone feels like they can take so much a bill before they need to leave. And I think it's kudos to Tom that he lasted there that long. <laughs> but when you went somewhere else, how different was it? <laughs> Trey, you ask any, if you ask any player that had good coaching and bad coaching, it is the biggest gap you will ever get, you will ever see. Because 
and I'm I'm so fortunate that I started my career that way, that I had great coaching. And when I went to Detroit, it was the complete opposite. And, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, dump on anyone, but when your coaches don't go over situations, when your organization is just so poorly run, you know, ran, guys don't care. Like guys were going out to strip clubs and all this stuff the night before a game. Motivation comes in many would, forms, Davian. Motivation comes it, in many forms. It, yeah, it, it, absolutely it does, man. But the culture was so <laughs> different, Trey. And losing wears on you. It wore on me. It wore on me, man. And and to the point where I literally gave up money to get out of my contract. Yeah, and, and by gave the way, up, and I'm not ta- and I'm not no. talking a small figure. I'm yeah. talking a, a nice chunk of money to get out because I was miserable. And just so people understand. That did happen, but there's nobody, and I mean nobody in your era of football, that kicked the can better than you because you got a first-round contract out of the Patriots. You hit free agency as a two-time Super Bowl champ. You get a big deal out of Detroit. Then you finish up with that massive deal for the New York Jets where you guys got on the precipice a couple of years. And the thing that I've noticed working with you over the years and, and just following you on Twitter, you, you feel like you're still part of that Jets thing, and it drives you crazy. <laughs> When they suck. And oh, by the way, they always suck. So, I mean, like, we did a session once on NFL Live where we did just did Jets therapy. Like, you were on the couch. I put on the lab coat and the glasses and took notes. And it just felt like you were venting. But you really feel that way. <laughs> oh, a- a- absolutely. I have a lot of passion when it comes to the Jets. And I let it be known. Listen, brother, I appreciate your time. By the way, we should, we should see how things are going here. Later on on this day, after this is done, we'll see this. He's going to teach a class at Boston College. I'm just at a bar having a drink. We're headed in opposite directions. I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> yeah, I can't drink too much. I just had a couple sips, but yeah, I do have to teach a class tonight. And, um, you know, I'm a man of many skills, Trey. I'm a man of many skills. And I'm a man of diminishing skills, and that's why this works. <laughs> Listen, brother, I love you. I appreciate the time. All the best to you and your family. Cheers, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Love you too, brother. Thanks for having me. So that'll do it for this episode of Half Forgotten History. Remember to use the promo code WINGO when you download DraftKings to make some picks this weekend. We'll see you next time on Half Forgotten History when our guest will be a former Super Bowl champion who played a long time for the Pittsburgh Steelers and is now a member of the media, and he did it by playing high school football at that pantheon of great talent depth, New York City. Don't get a lot of those out there. Willie Colon will be our next guest. We'll see you next time.